0: Welcome to Performance Anxiety. I'm your host, Mark. We are a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. And before we get started, I want to thank AKG for sending us their Podcaster Essentials Kit. It's got a Lyra mic and an incredibly comfortable set of headphones. I've been using them every week. I love it. This is an interesting episode. We have a previous guest returning with a new guest. We have a singer-songwriter with a poet-comedian-rapper. We're joined by Elizabeth McCullough, also known as Alpha Cat, and Jamal Hassan, who raps under the name Kid Anansi. And we talk about the two sides of Jamal's poetry, the serious and the comedic, one of the worst experiences he's witnessed at a poetry event. He talks about what inspired and continues to inspire him to write and how he's been working on his poetry during the pandemic. He also talks about how the UK's art has suffered as an export. And Elizabeth's remastered the Alpha Cat album Pearl Harbor. And incredibly, all the original files were lost. But luckily, she had copies of the premasters to work with. So she tells us the wild story behind that and the album's bonus tracks and the effect that art can have on people. We also hear how the two of them met and began working together and about Jamal's upcoming album. He talks about how he got over his anxiety about rapping and how food influences everything. Please give Alpha Cat and Kid Anansi a follow on social media. Follow us at Performance ANX on Twitter and Instagram. You can get us a cup of coffee at ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety. There's no commitment. Merchandise is available at performanceanx.threadless.com, and it was all designed by Mark Dancy of Soundgarden's Bad Motor Finger fame. Rate and review the episodes, and we now join our conversation with Elizabeth McCullough and Jamal Hassan, already in progress on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network.
1: Um, okay. It added out the okay. Um, I really want to thank Mark Shea of Performance Anxiety for allowing me to help introduce, uh, Jamal slash Kid Anansi to a wider audience than the UK and allowing me to learn even more about him and also giving me the exception of having me on twice to promote something when I think you've only done this once, I'm not sure, but um, that is very much appreciated. So Pearl Harbor reissue out now, primarily from my website alphacat.band, but believe me, nobody's heard it before. So it, don't think of it as a reissue. Um, yeah i'm
2: god i I had something so witty prepared but it's gone um yeah i i'm just really grateful to be here um like thanks so much mark for like coming on and being having like really great questions and being patient with my rambling and um yeah is there anything else that i should probably add um do you ever get the temptation to start singing, Papa? Can you hear me? Like whenever, like you don't know if someone is listening, just to have a bit of fun with the, like, um, with the I, sound issues.
0: I sometimes I do actually. It's, it's it's gone beyond temptation to actual practice.
1: Oh yeah, I think it. I think it should.
0: <laughs> oh man, how you guys doing? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you
1: both for coming on. This is going to be cool. I
0: can hear you.
1: I can hear Jamal. You guys can hear me, presumably. Yep. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Perfect. We're on the right track. Perfect. I've got my
0: cup of coffee, and Jamal, I'm not going to put my genitals in it.
2: Okay. Well, I mean, how else are you going to get that flavor, though?
0: (laughs) Well, (laughs) you make a good point. I I think maybe I've given that up for Lent.
1: (laughs) (laughs) very good very good i forgot the tentacles reference (laughs) which one is that from which one is that from have you ever been so lonely that's it yeah oh okay okay i have to listen to that again
0: oh yes that one yeah that one made me laugh and that was uh that's the one one of the things i found interesting and i I definitely want to get into this but uh before we get too deep into anything um I, uh, Elizabeth, you're familiar with how the show works, uh, but Jamal, what I like to do is kind of, and this show may maybe a little bit different, because there's two of you guys on, instead of one, I'd like to find out a little bit about how you got into poetry and music and, and writing and everything that you're doing, and i will kind of like to start from the beginning. Uh, I've already done that with, with Elizabeth, and Elizabeth, when I, I we get to... Jamal and, and the record label. I want to talk about Pearl Harbor's reissue and, and everything too. So, all right. Well, we've got genital free coffee. I've got Elizabeth and Jamal, and I'm ready to go if you guys are. Yep. Excellent. All right. Well, before we get for the listeners, before we get too too deep into anything, I would highly recommend going back and listening to the episode that I did with Elizabeth uh, from Alpha Cat. Who, Elizabeth, who is Alpha Cat. And uh, because we're going to be touching more on the re-release of an album rather than how she got to recording that album and the re-release. But we also are joined by a poet, a comedian, rapper, Jamal Hassan, also known from time to time as Kid Anansi. Did I got that right?
2: Yep. Hello. Oh, yeah. All right. Good. Good.
0: Yeah. It seems to me that you're focused more on the, the poetry side of your creative self. How did you really get mm. started on the poetry side and, and, and writing in general? I mean, was there something that that uh, grabbed you when you were young or were you, did your parents read you a lot of poetry? Did you read a lot of, the, uh, of it as a child? How did it really grab you? So
2: there were different ways that I... Um, there were different things that each had a small contribution, but it started off in, and this may be like every English teacher's dream, but it did start in English class Oh, where um, we had, uh, cause part of um, your English um, exams is there's a poetry like component. And most of the poems I really didn't care for. They were okay and especially because when you're learning about poetry in school and you're learning how to analyze them you don't you don't really like feel them as much because you just right. see them as work but then there was just this one poem called Vultures by Chinua Achebe about how that you can always find a kernel of love in hate and you can always find you know a kernel of hate in love and how like those two things like sort of combined together and through that he used the imagery of like two vultures eating like a dead carcass which is all gross and stuff right but they were but it was these two vultures also just being really romantic with each other and like nestling each other's bald heads and stuff and i just it just really affected me and that and after then i started to get more and more of an interest in poetry until i wrote my first one when i was trying to just procrastinate from a university like entrance exam because i was supposed to be like studying for it okay and i and then i i thought of a really funny poem because i was watching this really silly documentary uh this really silly mockumentary about a bunch of men who were really upset because their girlfriends had been reading Fifty Shades of Grey and then were neglecting them because they just kept taking the book into the um, into the bedroom with them to, and I quote, play downstairs DJ. So oh. <laughs> because I found this documentary so funny and so silly, I just had to write this breakup poem about a man who's really sad and you think that he's talking about like his girlfriend cheating on him and then at the end it's like damn you 50 shades of gray and then after sharing that with my friends at school the next day they were all like this is really great like you should definitely write more and so with their encouragement I did and then a couple years later I went to my first open mic and then um and I just kept going to more and more open mics until and then just getting better with my writing and with my performing until i'm here
0: oh on my podcast that's yeah that's where here is (laughs) yeah so like
1: but
2: but, here
1: yet not here
2: yeah (laughs) yeah but um but yeah it was just it was kind of a very classic thing of i I never, I definitely, even when I started uni and I started like learning about literature because I learned French and Italian. Um, oh, okay. In fact, because now I feel like the answer I've just given you is quite limited because there's so many things. There was like that English lesson. There were also some other really funny poems I read when I was like 13, 14. There was right. also the fact that because I studied Italian, what a lot of people know slash don't know is that most modern italian like the language itself is built from dante's divine comedy like dante's inferno really that one epic poem basically formed the basis of the italian language which we see now um i didn't know that and yeah yeah it's it's really interesting because um he wrote it in a type of latin which people spoke but no one wrote in because it was almost like writing an entire book in like modern day slang it's like if you went to like Bedsty and then basically wrote a book about someone going to hell then purgatory then heaven in like old in like bedsty slang or or in like <laughs> 1970s jive oh.
1: so like there is just
2: a very wow so that's like and then that basically formed the and because it was still written so beautifully despite using um because they called it vulgar latin because it was latin of the people it then formed the basis of the italian language itself because a lot of people don't know this the italian language is relatively young and if you go to italy you'll find that because most of the people there speak a dialect like the the origins of dialect in italian in italian languages go back like hundreds if not thousands of years but the actual modern italian language that we all know right now that is only maybe like a couple hundred years old oh wow i didn't know that at so, all yeah. and because it's like naturally poetic the um the like the natural poetry of the italian language because it was built by this one epic poem is also part of the reason why i'm so like i believe in like the natural lyricism of words and i like try to incorporate that and uh finally just growing up with like a lot of like my family isn't musical but we listen to a lot of music like we love to buy like really big speakers and just blare our music (laughs) and that is um and that has definitely been like one of one of the things so like it's all of these different things together which build my interest and my my love of poetry, really. So, yeah, that was my roundabout answer. But that's about <laughs> that's it. just a lot of different things.
0: Oh, that well, that makes sense. I mean, you do Most people don't have just one influence. Some people have one song that uh, flipped the switch for them. Some people say, "No, it was a, you know, mm-hmm. growing up in a household full of music or whatever." So that in- that that answer is actually incredibly interesting. And uh, how did the comedic aspect? work its way in because your poetry to me can be incredibly oh god i'm trying to think what's the what there's comedy in it but there's also a lot of intensity to it and mm. i don't always know which one i'm I'm going to be hearing when i when, when you start out <laughs>
2: <laughs> like oh, for example
0: um excellent
2: yeah <laughs> that is that is what i that's the intention i always i love surprising people mainly because like i love surprises myself like i love it when you think you're gonna get something and then it's like oh we pulled a fast one on you there yes (laughs) um and the reason the comedy the comedy aspect that came from okay so that can actually be traced to one poem okay one poem which is called milking and it basically starts up until And it also served as like part of the inspiration behind my Fifty Shades poem, because it's basically just a very simple, the structure of this poem is really simple. But the interesting thing about it is that it tells a story which makes you think that this is a story about a man about to have sex for the first time. Mm -hmm. And then the last line is, Oh no, he isn't actually having sex, he's milking a cow because he's like the sky was dark, the moon was high, all alone she and I, her hair was soft, her eyes so blue, I knew just what she wanted to do. And it keeps going on and on and on. And and like <laughs> when I read that for the first time at the age of like 13, 14, I thought this was th- I thought it was genius. I was like I was just blown away by just how clever that was. And then I wanted to make poetry like that. So the, for the first year or so, when I was writing poetry and performing it at open mics, it was just jokes and it was just joke poems. But then over time, as I not only wanted to get more opportunities as an artist, because there were poets who were, who were like getting lots of really great opportunities to appear on this thing or that thing, but mm-hmm. that was because their poems were deep and spoke to people and they could be taken seriously. Right. I'm here doing poems about doing big shits in little toilets that's not something that you can like go to the bbc poetry show and just be like this is what we want to have so so i had to learn to like put some seriousness in and also because i was going through a lot at the time i then realized oh wait hold on i actually can use poetry as a way to help make sense of my own brain like how poetry was originally made to be done right so i started um incorporating some serious themes and from incorporating in those serious themes i then started to blend the funny and the serious together and that ended up being what i realized is my mm-hmm. voice like i really do love writing a poem which in some bits you're like ah, ha 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 you're able to to laugh and joke because there's a lot of tense. there's a lot of intensity right in a poem Um, But also there's that seriousness that makes you think. And one thing that definitely reinforced that uh, belief was the fact that going to a lot of open mics and there is so much like emotion that is being performed at you, like so many people who will write poems about their trauma and perform it, that you often like need something funny to just sort of cut through all of the pain. And I I realized that, having that blend is really effective. And I think I definitely owe my belief in like knowing that you can blend those two together to the amazing TV show that is Scrubs. Because (laughs) Scrubs blends serious and funny beautifully, so much so that you almost don't even notice it. But you still remember, like everyone remembers an episode of Scrubs that definitely like hurt, like it hit them in the feelings. Right. And that is... Oh, and that's something I want. I want something that I want to create stuff that makes people cry with laughter and also just cry with crying as well.
0: Yeah. <laughs> we well, do it to great effect is in works like, um, have you ever been so broke and, and have you ever been so lonely? Those, yeah. those two are fantastic. It was, it was just like you had described. It was a great blend of, of me feeling laughter, you know, laughing because some of, some of the, the, the parts of the poem were hilarious like putting you know putting your genitals in your coffee but there are other parts i'm sitting there going yeah you know what i actually have been that broke and that was not a fun time yeah (laughs) i have been that lonely
2: oh definitely the funniest thing about the lonely poem is that i wrote that one as a joke Um, And it was purely meant to be a joke. And then when I started performing it, people were like, ooh, that that cut, that that cut to my soul. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, I'm so, and I'm just there like really apologizing. Like, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to make you feel called out like that. (laughs) Accidental truth. But then it wound up, yeah. And it wound up just being, it wound up being one of my favorite poems to perform. And it wound up, and it was also so like, it was so cutting that my girlfriend when i wrote it like she's my ex now but when i when i wrote it like we got into a full-on fight because she took it seriously and she was like wow. what the hell is this jamal oh my god how lonely are you like and i'm just saying, like it was a joke i wrote it because it's, it's a joke yeah <laughs> but yeah oh my gosh
0: you've got this um this very personal element to a lot of your work um 853 it was 858, I'm trying to remember My numbers are bad at this point I'm, I,
2: forgot I forgot to write 838. it down on my, 838. 838,
0: I forgot to write it down on my notes But I remember which poem it was You know, that, that's
2: very Personal work Baby Mariam Spits out her pacifier for the third Time this morning Mama leans to her left Picks it up, sucks and spits Out the dirt and returns it to Her wailing mouth ready for the game To start again only this time it doesn't. Flashing blue eyes freeze her in her tracks. <laughs> of all of the days, she could have forgotten her driving license at home. It had to be this one. Her life flashes before her eyes.
0: Do you ever? Mm-hmm. Did you ever have a? a, a or did you have a difficult time performing or reciting the poems? I'm not exactly sure what with, what with, with the what the act is called is is it performing or reciting uh performing okay
2: yeah performing is fine
0: so so perform oh that's great well that was that and and, uh the one about your parents you know uh, my parents and i were those difficult to perform live
2: um i thought they were going to be but then um luckily because just before then i had been in fact i think yeah because i because i wrote them both in like 2019 before then i was in late 2018 i got entered into a writing course a poetry writing like workshop course by one of the biggest poetry organizations in the uk oh wow an organization called apples and snakes and i was really excited but because there was a lot of seriousness the um like the, our facilitator who was basically mentoring us just went, Why are you so scared of telling the truth? And then I, and I kind of really just took that as, You're right, I really should. And, and then at first, like with every poem, I'm always like scared of reciting them. But mm. with the personal ones, less so. It was more actually making the decision to write them in the first place. That was the thing that, um, I found more difficult because I I remember when I started writing poet, when I started performing at open mics and only doing joke poems, I said to myself, I never want to recite or perform a serious poem because there's so much seriousness in the poetry scene already. I like my niche as the funny guy. But then when the seriousness kept coming up, but then when like, the inspiration to write something seriousness kept coming i felt like no i actually have to put this down and then and when and if i was really pleased with what i had written then i would perform it so because i was pleased with how 838 and my parents and i came out i was like no i will take this to my next open mic because this is actually a good piece of writing right but the but um 838 is an especially interesting one because for more than 10 years, like I had basically repressed that memory. And I had essentially forgotten that it had happened. And then I remember talking to my mom and just bringing it up just being like, that happened, didn't it? And she was like, Yeah, it did. Crazy, right? And I was like, how can you say crazy, so nonchalantly? Like, do you like, that's a really serious thing that happened. And it yeah. was so horrible. And so unjustified and she was like yeah but you know jamal if you haven't realized we're black this happens all the time yeah and then i felt like i have to say something and i was and i was very like calm about it i was like there is nothing i regret about writing it and because of that i felt nothing but confidence when performing it wow ironic and because of that ironically i actually have more fear when performing a funny poem because my greatest fear is I perform something with jokes in it and the people don't laugh. That frightens me to my core because if you perform a serious one in in poetry, people will always be supportive no matter how bad it is. Even if you rhyme like feelings with feelings, (laughs) like you get you still have people being supportive and thanking you for sharing because they will still like have your sentiments resonate with them but if you're out here making jokes and the jokes don't land then no one's going to say anything everyone's just going to be like everyone's just going to like turn their backs on you and i think you're a bad stand that is yeah, exactly. Like, if you bomb, like, you can only really bomb a serious poem if your poem is, like, genuinely offensive. Like, you say a bunch of misogynist or racist stuff. Right. Which has actually happened. And if we get a chance to, I would love to tell you a couple stories about how someone thought that doing a racist poem in a, at a poetry night would have been, was a good idea. Oh, my God. Which was a terrible idea. It's hey, a terrible oh, idea yeah. on any well, I mean, night. it wasn't... Yeah, the thing is, it wasn't even like a terror. It wasn't even like a racist poem. It just, it was just very ignorant in its um, in its self righteousness. Because the poem itself was a guy basically talking about how eating meat is just as bad as slavery. And the problem is, this was in a very racially diverse crowd. So it just, it just, it went down very badly. Oh my! And the host even had to say that was unacceptable. If anyone wants if anyone like feels a way about what just happened, please come and talk to me because we are not going to tolerate this ever. Wow. And yeah. And no host wants to do that. Like every host for for a poetry night is like that is our greatest fear having to actually be like that was not okay because not only do we feel like we're censoring, but we also is that it's that weighing of do I actually like censor this poet because what they did is genuinely bad or do i like because like you have a duty of care to your audience you know yeah and if your audience believes that they can't be safe at a poetry night especially such an an emotionally vulnerable event then they just won't come and he and he realized no i have to so so yeah um that's that's kind of it
0: I've wow, I've you know, and and I honestly I'm not super familiar with the poetry world. I've had one other poet on here really, maybe well, maybe one and a half. And uh so I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not steeped in the poetry world, but even I know that that's just you, you can't do stuff like that. Like but I said, that's unacceptable.
2: Mm-hmm. So it's it's just like it's it ends up being a problem because um, it's very easy to lose sight of it because there's so much openness. And then occasionally some poets will do something a little risque. Um, For example, we, in the London poetry scene, there is one poet who is literally a nudist. And sometimes (laughs) when he performs, he will literally get butt naked. Oh my gosh. And the... And the thing is only at certain events does it work because like most of the time people are like, Oh my God, he's naked. But The other time people are like, this is, but the thing is you're there like, well, this is clearly performance art and you know, it's not my thing, but I understand why he's doing it. Right. And yeah. So like there are, there are lots of different, like crazy things you end up seeing, but it's, it all comes down to if you know the place if you know the place you're performing at, then you should know like what isn't, isn't appropriate because you get a feel for the vibe. If you don't, and if you F up the vibe, like don't come, don't just, just then, then you won't be welcome anymore. Yeah. You've got to,
0: you know, you really got to know your audience. I mean, it's, mm. same, same happens with a lot of the, uh, the musicians I've had on this show. You, you know, they've got to, you got to know your audience. I had one guy on here who was spent a, uh, two years in a band on a, on a uh, cruise ship, you know, he was like, he, in a in a different way, but same concept. You've got to know your audience. You can't go out there and play all kinds of heavy metal when you got elderly people out there. So, of course. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. That, okay. So th- that's some weird experiences. What is, what is the weirdest experience you've had during one of your readings either something that's that you've done or maybe something you've seen or has happened to you
2: okay hmm (laughs) hmm so um i will say like it is ernesto the guy who gets naked because he got naked at my first ever well it was one of the first open mics i went to when i started saying i'm going as a poet rather than just a guy with a poem okay so because like he was just there i was very surprised but i still was like i still almost respected his bravery for doing it because no because i was like this man commits and i appreciate that
0: right right
2: and that's the first thing the other the other thing and i would say that this was this is just like the weirdest funny thing that's happened And it's still like one of my fate like I still love mentioning this story because it cracks me up every time I think about it. Oh good. So it's an open mic and this guy um, like comes up and starts doing a breakup poem. And the thing is, there's a weird kind of like enjoyable catharsis in the London poetry scene when people do breakup poems. Cause it's almost like, cause everyone's so supportive. We're all like, yeah, go off. Yeah, 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 you feel those feelings. (laughs) And everything was going great. Everyone was just like, you know, enjoying like his breakup poem. But then he started to sort of criticize his x in a way that can only be described as he he basically okay before i before i continue with this do you know what the um what i mean when i say a hashtag nice guy like a guy who thinks he's nice but isn't really nice
0: okay that makes sense
2: yeah so he started so as he was doing the poem and everyone was like just vibing and enjoying you know, the cathartic anger. He then started going on about how, oh, you know what your problem is? You never go for people who are nice. You always go for awful, awful men who treat you bad. And because like a lot of the women there were intelligent, the problem is a lot of them immediately clocked on to what he meant. And then the wave, like you should have seen it, just the wave of everyone smiling and nodding to just, deadpan faces oh. it just it was just so fast and i like i could have laughed like it was like um at the time i was just squeezing my thigh just being like don't crack up don't crack up don't crack up. But i was just seeing everyone just like with these really just like stone faces and then the best part is after that a girl then came on and then did a poem and did like a sort of i don't need no man kind of poem and because it was like juxtaposed with that guy's poem earlier she wound up getting a standing ovation oh that's awesome so it was so that was like the weirdest moment but it 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 fills me with so much like it was a weirdly positive thing right. where like a bad thing wound up becoming really good
0: yeah that's fantastic. Oh, man. So do you, do you have a, a process when you write or do you sit down and, and write or is it something that you get an inspiration and then you just start writing then?
2: It's a bit of both. Okay, So for some poems, um, like especially early on, I wanted to write if I wanted to write a certain poem and I would sit down and I would just hammer away at it until it was either good or i would give up and be like okay this idea just doesn't work and other poems like just the idea comes to me and i'm like okay let's see where this goes and then it just flows out very naturally okay so it can be either or but the reason i do make more of an effort to sit down and write is because if i just wait for inspiration the whole time um i wouldn't I would only have maybe like three-fifths of all the poems that I have currently. Oh, okay. So it's like, it's important. And that's the thing, like, it's not, poetry isn't just like expression. I mean, it is like a lot, a large portion of it is expression, but it ends up become, but as you do it more, it becomes a skill. And right. it's a skill that you hone and practice. Okay. And that's why you have like, tons um of poetry writing workshops and performance workshops and like last year before the pandemic um for the poetry night that i run i was even with my co-host ready to start like hosting performance workshops so i could teach people how to make the most of their performance because people because like it is something you learn like even though people who are performing and stuff make it look easy it's a cultivated practice oh
0: yeah yeah for sure I've got this, and I, I guess maybe I've always had this, this, this kind of preconceived notion about poetry that you start it, you write it, and then it's done. So it's, I've always had this notion, I guess, I guess I kind of think of it as linear, but I mean, is it that way for you? Or do you, have you ever written poems and you realize, well, this is great, but now I actually have to find a way to start it? Because what I've written is like the middle uh-
2: part. Yeah, so some poems I end up writing like a part of it because um, sometimes I use one note to type it so I can literally just have a verse of a poem just to the side okay. as I write the rest and then I will either find a way to like bring it in. But even with some poems which I think, okay, I think it's done. And then as I perform it, there are certain word choices which I realize as I'm performing it this sounds better, this rolls off the tongue better, so I have to change it. Or, for instance, with my I'm So Straight poem, yes. every time I end up hearing an example of toxic masculinity where in which a guy does something ridiculous because he's so scared of people calling him gay because of it, that then ends up becoming a new line. So
1: <laughs> okay.
2: when I first wrote the I'm So Straight poem in 2018, versus like what it is like now, it's at least like four or five lines longer because I've had to just add <laughs> wow. new things that have been that I've just discovered because I'm like, wow, you really said that just here with witnesses.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. So some of these works can actually continue to grow as time goes and ne- never really be completed then.
2: Uh, yeah. Well, there are some which I would say like when they're done, they're done. Um, Like 838, like when that one was done, I was like, perfect. That's it. It is. But then others, especially ones which are like crowd favorites, like the I'm So Straight poem. Those ones, I always feel like we can grow that. And the main reason why I want them to grow is because when I get really used to performing a poem, I get bored of it. So I'm like, I need to zhuzh it up. I need to add some spice to it. Okay,
0: that makes sense. Now, Elizabeth, how did you find Jamal? How did you two come across each other?
1: Well, um, I decided to treat myself to a trip to London in July of 2019 because I hadn't been there for years, and it's basically my favorite place in the world, and I happened to get there on a Wednesday when the timeout came out, And my practice is to go through everything for the week and circle the things that I wanted to go to. And that night, which was July 2nd, there was this poetry slam. I didn't even know what a poetry slam was. I had never heard of it. I didn't know what it was. But I decided I wanted to go. And when I tell you it was an odyssey to get there... (laughs) It's not, It's like it involved walking an hour jet lagged, you know, getting to the venue, being told it was sold out, then a woman coming out saying that, you know, I could have her ticket, then I go in, then they've changed the venue, then I have to look it up again on my phone, and then, you know, I'm using Google Maps to try to find this place. And, you know, you stand in the street with Google Maps and you're just watching the arrow just spin in circles. And you're like, what the fuck direction am I supposed to walk in? Like, can you (laughs) just stop for a second? And I had assumed that I was going to eat there, so I hadn't eaten. And somehow I found this place and, you know, I got there a little early, you know, luckily, and I was sitting outside by myself, you know, obviously older than everyone there, uh, you know, obviously, well, not obviously American because I hadn't spoken to anyone yet, but, you know, drinking my ginger ale, smoking some cigarettes, and one of the guys, one of the, the, I guess the runner of the slam came up to me and asked me to be a judge. Oh wow! And I was like, I was like, um, I prefer not to, you know. <laughs> and he's like, Oh, could you please be a, a judge, you know? And I'm like, Well, why do you want me to be a judge? And he said, Well, obviously, no, no one here, <laughs> So Um, And, you know, him not knowing that I was a songwriter and that, you know, and and I finally agreed and, you know, we sit around this table and they gave us the the placards with the numbers and, and, you know, poet after poet comes up and then Jamal comes up and I'm like, oh my God, like this guy is so amazing. And I literally had just gotten on social media. I hadn't even put out my record yet. I was still in the mixing process, literally doing it like online from oh, wow. you know, Miami, you no, know, from Georgia to London. And I, I I was like, I've got to put this guy up on my social media. And um and so that I, I did. And it all, you know, I went up to Jamal after the performance because I gave him the highest marks all across the board. There was one particular poet, I won't even give their sex, but I just found them really, I I didn't appreciate what they did at all, and I gave them low marks, and the showrunner called me out, and he was like, oh, Elizabeth with a 5.6, and and I'm like, oh my God, this person's gonna come meet me outside afterward and beat the (laughs) shit out of me, right? But at the end of the night, I went up to Jamal and he's like, why is this strange, you know, person coming up to me? And I just asked him for his information. And I think he just wrote Kid Anansi on a scrap of paper. Okay. And and my promoter at the time, you know, who was running my social media, because I didn't know how to do it yet, did not have an easy time finding him cause he really wasn't on social media that, that much at that point, only, only on Instagram. Maybe you're on more now. I don't, I, I know you're on YouTube obviously, but so I posted about him because when I decided to go on social media, I decided that I was going to post about things that I resonated with things that I enjoyed and that it sense. wasn't going to yeah. be about self-promotion unless I had something of my own that I need needed to promote. And so, you know, we started this kind of very uh, driven, and drab kind of communication where he thanked me maybe by DM um, for posting about him. And then I, you know, I started looking at his Instagram and one of the poems popped up for me that this was really relevant to what I was going through at the time. And I thought I could write a song to this. And I asked, again, this is all through DM, Mm -hmm. asked him if if he would be willing to let me do that. And he was like, well, what does that mean? And I said, well, it would mean that I would be, you would be the lyricist and I would be the, the, you know, I would write the melody Mm -hmm. and we would split the songwriting profits, were there to be any? And he's like, sure. So that kind of then, Got to a point where he asked me a question, and I said, "This is not a DM thing. This is a conversation." So then we started talking over Zoom, and I think our first Zoom conversation was three hours. Oh wow! And they basically just have continued since then, and you know, I've grown to just love him as a person. We can talk about anything. Um, you know, he's he's taught me a lot, you know, because I have a lot of ignorance. I was ignorant until I went to that poetry slam. I didn't realize racism was as bad in England as it was right. until I watched the the black poets speak of it. And then I was like, Holy shit, like I, how ignorant and naive am I, you know? So we've had conversations about everything from, you know, our Upbringings are what we're going to at the time, you know, racism, politics, um, everything. (sighs) And usually our Zooms minimum, except for yesterday, because he had to go garden. God damn him. I'm (laughs) sitting here now. Um, Usually, you know, two to three hours. Wow. So for me, there's just a great love. I've, I, I have a great love for him now just as a person. Sure. As a, and in addition to just an unbelievable amount of respect for his talent, his intelligence, his, his wisdom, and the breadth of knowledge that he has at the, the age that he is, is like something that should blow anybody away.
0: And you've started your own record label and yeah. he's part of that. What was the intention in the beginning? Is it, was it to do uh, something musical or was it always to record some of his, his poetry or, or was it just to develop in any way that he wanted to?
1: Well, the First of all, I have to say it's not yet on the label, and there are UK, US differences in terms of contracts and things like that. Okay. That, you know, we may or may not work out. Either way, I'm going to be supportive of him. Um, okay. But as far as the label, you know, from my early days of going to clubs and then seeing people get signed and seeing how the labels made them be someone they weren't. You know, I and I and I there were I had a few experiences or a few wit, witnessed a few things that were just so heinous as far as that goes. Uh one in particular was there was there's this band called Not a Surf. They had a big hit in the oh yeah 90s, I think it was yeah, called Popular. And we had just finished recording at Pearl Harbor had come out, I think it was two thousand two. And during the process of recording, we had had to kick the drummer out for a number of reasons. But basically, he wasn't a very good drummer. Right. So um, so I was, you know, I was looking for a drummer, and not a surf was at that point broken up. And so we met with, I think his name's Ira Glassman. He met me and Fred Smith at a, at a cafe in the East Lower East side and we had coffee and he gave me this demo that they had made, but not a surf had made. I think it had seven songs on it and it was one of the most exquisite, gorgeous things I'd ever heard. Um, I loved it. Unfortunately, the CD was damaged, and it may be on a hard drive on a 20-year-old computer somewhere, oh, yeah. retrievable. I've tried to get it from them. They don't respond. Oh. But, um, but there was one song in particular called Inside of Love, which was just, I mean, I hate to use the word exquisite again, but that it's just the songwriting, the performance, the musical accompaniment, everything about it was just unbelievably gorgeous and touching and meaningful. And they got back together. He didn't join the band. They got back together. They signed with the major label and they put that song out. And what they did to that song was rape it. They raped it. Mm. They it. They ruined that song to me. And I was like... And I had already decided I would never be on a major label, but that was that was one other thing. And then there was the whole thing that happened with Wilco. You know, when you remember when Yankee Fol- Hotel Foxtrot came out, mm-hmm. and the label refused to put it out, and oh, they were right. able to, they were able to buy back the masters, and then it blew up. Yeah, and it was like you know, fuck you, label. You know, look what you missed out on. But exactly you know, those are just a few examples. And, you know, knowing that, you know, I'm, I'm obviously I'm not 20 anymore. I'm, you know, maybe I have a record or two left in me, but it's like, I started to think about, you know, what is the legacy that I want to leave? And, you know, the pandemic's brought that on us as well, you know, where we come face to face with our own mortality, And we say, you know, really what is it that we are meant to be here for, you know? And for me, I thought, how, you know, what could I do that would be something that would live beyond me? And that turned into start a label where the artists are chosen because they don't need to be changed. You know, I, I have a lot of experience as an indie you know i've gained a lot of experience most of it the hard way um i have accumulated contacts and trustful you know trustworthy uh people to work with and and i just thought you know i just i, I this is this is what i want to do because I, I you know and i and i had thought that you know i thought you know when my next record comes out the success of that rec- record will determine uh, whether or not, you know, I can start this label because then it'll have some kind of cachet. And then at some point I switched the narrative and I was like, you know, it doesn't matter anymore because what I do know is that I know how to spot talent and, and I know authenticity. Yeah. And that that was what, you know that was the impetus for starting the label
0: okay and in starting that label you're also re-releasing the pearl harbor album through that and what was that process like how difficult was it you you went through a rough time after that album was it difficult to decide well i'm going to go back and, and revisit this album remaster it and re-release it and did you find anything that uh you weren't expecting and i mean that could be something as simple as a couple extra tracks or maybe some photos to put in or anything deeper well
1: the story of of what happened with the record the original record i'm not sure if we've talked about it it's pretty well written yeah. out in web page but yeah. um it was you know it was written it was work, you know, there was two years of work and I did write the songs, but the record sounds the way it does because of the band and the collaborators that played on that record. It's, it's not just me that made that record. It's everyone who played on it. It's Red Smith, yeah. you know, it's. But the fact, of, the fact that I, you know, at the very last minute, I decided to write this song called Thatched Roof, Glass House, about how you have to book, knock down a glass building in order to build something that's solid, and decided to use the sound effects of the glass building falling down at the very last minute recorded the drum tracks, which is why in that version of the song, there's a drum machine, because we'd already used up the studio time for drums. Uh, okay. And I, I just insisted on putting that, re- that song on the record. and then of course you know i go to la i get it mastered i i drop it off the manufacturer and my plane lands back in new york at the moment the first plane hit the tower and nobody you know, I don't think anybody ever even heard the Breaking Glass. All they did was they saw a bomb on the cover and they saw the title Pearl Harbor and there was no way anybody was going to play that record. Right. So it never had a chance. And it was a culmination of years of gigging with this band, you know, honing these songs and years of recording and it never had a chance. So when I was up in my cabin, my family cabin in Michigan in the summer in August of 2019, basically the same time I was releasing Fast Roof, I had this habit of getting up very early and doing all sorts of rituals. And and I and I listened to it. I had it on my phone and I listened to the record. And I'm like, damn, this is a good record. You know, it deserves another chance. Yeah. And I I didn't know there was a pandemic coming. I and mean, you know, consciously, you know, I mean, I, I think if you listen to any of my interviews, or it's it's pretty apparent that I have a pretty strong intuition. But uh, so that that all, you know, so that was the that was the original impetus for it. And then, of course, you know, the pan. My mother dies four days later. There's a global pandemic. Yeah. And the other weird thing is that Fred, for years, had talked about how he wanted to remix Pearl Harbor, and so I thought that we were gonna, that I was going to get Brett Thorngren to remix it and then master it, and it took Fred a bit of time to tell me that, in fact, all the files were lost. So, I somehow, by the grace of the universe, uh, found the original pre-master that I'd taken to Capitol Records in L.A. in September of 2001. Wow. So, so Brett remastered that, and that process was was a bit long because I wanted the masters to be right, and there was a long period where they were always too bottom-heavy. And then during that process, I also remembered this one song in particular that I had written when I was the one time that I taught college that when I was really early recording, you know, onto a four track cassette and long story short, I've said it in another interview, but, you know, I basically, I, I had been teaching from the book. I had bored the shit out of the students. They hated my guts. Um, and then I got sick for three weeks and I'm driving back to work and it was a 45 minute drive. So two speeding tickets there and back, that was my salary for the Uh. semester. Okay. So, um, I'm driving there the 45 minutes and I'm listening to the song over and over and over and thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I'm never going to catch up. And then it just hit me, you know, this is an art appreciation class and what really is that about? And so I went in and I said, this is, I I need a cassette player and I played the song and I said, really what, what is art, but you have something inside of you that you've got to get out and you put it in some form that someone else can experience and i said i'm not the best singer i'm not the best writer i'm not that great of a recording person but this is pure and it's from my heart and one of my students came down after the class and said i was going to kill myself when i walked in here today and now i'm not going to and i i actually ran into him on the street sitting in front of the white horse Tavern one summer it was probably at least three to five years later because i had the band alpha cat by then and he was great he was like you know miss mccullough how are you you know what are you doing with the music and and it was just this confirmation that yes he was okay Wow. you know so Jeez. i went looking for that song and I ended up finding one other song before I found that song. So those two ended up on the record. So the record that is basically a relic about a relic, you know, contains two even older relics. That's um, amazing. But it's really, you know, it could it become something about, you know, how do you go back to the past to figure out how to heal the present and your future. Wow. That's pretty profound for me. I don't,
0: know, man, I could probably end right there, but I'm not going to. So, Mm. the album is out and available for, for purchase at,
1: at this point? Um, well, I did a bit of a screw up with that because I've overwhelmed myself with too much work (laughs) and also dealing with a lot of bureaucracy related and unrelated to my label, my music, my trademark, stuff okay. like that. So I ended up screwing that up. So that you know, it's it's up on CD Baby. It's up on my website. It's submitted to all the streaming services, but I don't believe that they've put them that they've put it up yet. Okay. But if if somebody wanted to buy it, my website's the cheapest place to buy it from.
0: Ah, okay. And is that the Alpha cat dot band? Yeah. Yes. Oh, perfect. So, Jamal, speaking of Yo. performing, you know, this past year is, has just really done a number on anybody who performs live. How are you yeah. performing? I, I've seen a few performances done over Zoom, and all, but how often are you performing now compared to the year before?
2: So, a lot less. Um, so, when... The pandemic hit the basically every poet who ran their own night we all in london at least we basically formed a massive whatsapp group to both apply for funding and to just figure out what to do and then many of us did start um just basically running our events on zoom which i personally understand that this is the best we can do but I don't, I don't enjoy Zoom performances, yeah. mainly because as a, as a comedy poet, what makes my work work so well is the fact that I work with the audience. And because there is that moment's delay with your audience, and because comedy is all about timing, my timing is constantly thrown off. So I've had to almost perform like the audience isn't there which is oh. just not what I'm used to. Yeah. But there have been a couple of things. So last year, so towards the end of last year, I got accepted onto firstly a festival in which I performed in front of a camera and that was live streamed. And that, that was fine because I just kind of felt like I was performing normally and just, or at least that I was recording Right. something so that was a little bit that made me feel a little bit more at ease um, and the other was when we actually did have an event with an audience and it was a an event called life and rhymes so sky arts had done a had basically commissioned a tv show and they ran for four episodes basically having a socially distanced poetry event okay. um and With that, I was able to at least, um, that was like the only time I was able to perform and actually work with the audience. And doing that, it was actually quite amazing because I had forgotten how much I love performing in front of a live audience. Wow. And it, it really, like, and it was especially difficult because in like 2018, 2019, before the pandemic hit, I was going to open mics like three to four times a week. Oh, wow. Because I was trying to make it for myself. So I was... So granted, I would definitely say that I am... That I've gotten more sleep um, (laughs) since the pandemic. But yeah, like, I am, I am naturally like a live performer with an audience. So I haven't enjoyed it at all. But at the same time, we like with live streaming and with creating zoom poetry nights there we're at least keeping it going but because of political reasons i'm genuinely terrified for the future because the uk one of our biggest exports is arts okay Okay. people love like the tv the music the theater just like our arts like we are a world leader in it And unfortunately, because we have a very conservative government running the country right now, they are not, it's been very clear that they're not really going to invest in the arts anymore, which is especially ironic because the first lockdown we had, the one thing keeping everyone going was arts. You know, it was TV, it was movies, it was books, like it was all of that. So because there's going to be less funding, a lot of, I know that when Basically, the entire art world is vaccinated. We're going to end up working for with a lot more guerrilla techniques. Oh wow! To try and get it done, which I am quite excited to do because I do love sort of because I am very used to doing things on a bootstrap. So right. I'll see. I'm excited to see how it
1: goes. So, what did you the- forgot to mention? I, I need to interrupt. You yeah. forgot to mention that you won a slam recently, where you or you want a trip to berlin. Oh wow. Oh, God. I always forget <laughs> I
2: always forget about that. <laughs> um so yeah. There was a there was a slam called Superheroes of Slam and the winner would get a um perfor- would get to perform at um f- at their final in Berlin. So it was a it was basically a UK qualifying round, and yeah, I won it. Um, Nice. And I was actually pretty, and I was actually quite amazed because a couple of poets who were there were poets that I really do admire and respect, and I was just like, wow, I beat you. Wow. (laughs) And I was like, you're going
1: to beat them. You're going to win. He's like, I don't know. And then uh, I was like, I told you so.
0: That's awesome. So have you, have you kind of immersed yourself in the world of poetry since meeting up with, with Jamal
1: now? Um, Jamal shares stuff with me um, to be honest I have so many things on my plate that it's difficult for me to find time to do what I absolutely must do. So I I try to listen to stuff that people send me, um, but I, I barely have time to eat, much less, right. you know, investigate things that aren't, you know, that don't just come to me naturally. Okay. Um, and enough stuff comes to me naturally. That you know I have enough I have enough material to you know post about that way right and i and I would be remiss in not mentioning that I do have someone signed to my label who's actually a rapper um who's okay. based in France right now, and he came to me through my lawyer um, <laughs> wow, because he's a basketball player, and my lawyer had asked me about. And he goes by L. Boogs. My lawyer had asked me about clearing samples, and I didn't know that much about it. But Brett Thorngren knows a lot about it, so I referred him to Brett. And then, and then, the, this this L. Boogs, whose name is Lawrence, um, had the balls to email me directly and send me links, and <laughs> I was. I was impressed. So I was like, you know, bravo to you for getting up the nerve to send this to me. And this is really good. And, you know, you are not going to be the Michael Jordan of baseball.
0: <laughs> you say you get a lot of, of, of people contacting you. Is that just out of the blue? Like You'll just get an email with some They contacting you through your website?
1: Well, you know that's not that's not really entirely true. I, I get contacted by legitimate people occasionally, even though I've I've changed all my profile pictures to either me with a bag on my head or me as a seven year old. I still get somehow. I thought I'd block this, but I still get people calling from all over the world on my phone. Wow. You know and i get messages they're basically just like trying to you know they're 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 like booty calls yeah. <laughs> you know? but then but then i get you know then i'll get a woman that that will say you know i've just gotten divorced from my husband i don't feel like i have anything to live for you know can you, your stuff really helps me or you know something like that and that is why i'm doing it
0: oh that's fantastic Speaking of fantastic, Jamal, you're, you're fantastic. Mm-hmm. But beyond that... Um, Thank you. <laughs> you also have music. You've, you've rapped as Kid Anansi. Do you have any plans to, to release any of that or, or, or work on
2: any of that in the future? Uh, yeah, so I'm, I am working on a... Wait, Elizabeth, am I allowed to talk about this? Absolutely. <laughs> okay cool um yeah so yeah i am working slowly towards my first album i called it eponym and i wanted it to be like something that encompasses me so there's going to be like some rapping in it where in by which i basically incorporate music into certain poems that i have written and i, and I turn them into raps oh cool because some because cause with some of them um and this inspiration came up when i got invited to perform at one of my favorite open mics as a featured as a featured act and get paid for it oh wow and i said to them i love what you guys do so much because it's a hip-hop poetry night and they were the ones who taught me how to rap like because at the end of every open mic session they have a cipher in which everyone they just put on some beats they have the mic just in the middle if you want to rap something to the beat you just pick it up and you go ahead. Oh cool. And with that um when I started like and this was in like the summer of 2018 I was I could not rap. Like I did not know how to. I kept embarrassing myself. I always felt weird about it. But then because I kept going on and I kept wanting to practice um because the the anxiety I got from like having nothing to say when I had the mic in my hands was like really strong motivation to keep practicing and keep learning how to freestyle. Yeah. So when they invited me on as a featured act, I then picked a few poems which I wanted to perform that all sort of coalesced together. And then I made some music on my loop station because I built myself a mini studio and I, saw. I just created I oh did, yes I, I did see that on instagram I, oh yeah i was i was so happy with how um how the table came out because everything before then i had to just sort of put it in a corner of my room and then just move everything one at a time to set it up yeah but yeah but once i started um having a setup to sort of make stuff on my loop station i was then just playing around in my room and i was like oh no this will be really fun to do um so for instance like one thing i did was um like one of the poems i wrote was called memoirs of a soft boy that i was going to perform there okay and i turned that into a rap by adding some music on it and basically the the theme of that poem memoirs of a soft boy is like i said those kinds of men who who think they're nice but actually aren't right and I, and it was a very specific kind of insidious toxic masculinity, which I wanted to refer to. And the best way for me to do that, I realized, was to sort of make it to a sort of semi sampled beat that was constructed from the Pixies Where Is My Mind, oh, because cool. whenever I thought of guys whenever I thought of guys like this, I always was like their favorite, I bet their favorite film is like Fight Club or some shit. (laughs) And because where is my mind? The end of Fight Club. And it's how like 90% of the guys I know who act like this know the song. Yep. That was what sort of brought me to creating it and creating a work like that. And that was, and, and yeah, like I got, I had a lot of fun just creating raps as soon as I had learned how to sort of do it because I never realized until I started doing these ciphers that rapping is a serious skill. Yes. Like a lot of people underestimate the skill that goes into, like, for example, controlling your breath whilst you are essentially using your voice and your mind as a musical instrument.
0: I'm blown away. and I really, it's, it's, I've seen some of that and I, I could never do it. And uh, it, it's, it really is a, an incredible skill.
2: Like It is. And because of that, and because of how the people who run this event have helped me like, learn how to rap, I then am able to do it. But, but recently, though, because say, I'd say that Kid Nancy is my music name rather than my rapping name, because okay. whilst I realized I can rap, I would not call myself a rapper. I would definitely call myself more a poet but i will do poetry to music which technically is rap like it technically is but the issue with me calling myself a rapper is that that is a skill set which i'm still working on and and like i'm not ready yet to call myself like a rapper i am a poet who can rap okay but yeah but like i definitely think that Poetry and rap do intertwine a lot, especially after, I don't know if you've heard of the rapper No Name, but she does it incredibly, like oh, so okay. exquisitely, it it makes you want to cry. Wow. Like, it's truly amazing.
0: I'll have to check her out because I'm not familiar with it, but, but I'd love to it, go on your recommendation. And uh, I, I noticed something else on your Instagram page that uh, you mm-hmm. you love food.
2: <laughs> oh yes food plays a huge part in um i think i know what you were gonna ask and the answer is yes food does play a huge part in my poetry yes um and it and like it's i mean it's born may mainly from my family because like my mom loves to cook oh. and like she is one of those people who like when we always have food in the fridge because even during the pandemic because she's like One, because she grew up like in poverty in Ghana, she knows what it's like to actually go without food. So that's one thing. And also part of Ghanaian culture is hospitality where when people visit, you always need to have a meal. So even during the pandemic, we had enough food for two families. And it was always because just in case someone needed, someone came around like needing food or needing something, she could have it for them. So she has instilled that in me and that love of food and just general gastronomy has just increased where a lot of my like one of my poems literally is called the orgy and it starts off with just this very clear implication oh this is a poem about me having an orgy but then it turns out no it's I get in. I have an orgy that's been organized for me, and there's a buffet table, and I'm so happy that there's a buffet table that I start <laughs> having sex with the food rather than the people. <laughs> and like, that is like probably the one poem where, like, after I wrote it, I said, "I sh- I said like this is probably the best food based poem I could write." So I'm gonna just I'm gonna just calm down now. <laughs> like, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Do you mind if I interject something that I you just made me think of? Mm-hmm. I don't know why it, this hadn't struck me before, but the thing with food and the nourishment of of the body, I think it really it extends. The metaphor could be extended to nourishment for your soul.
2: Mm. Wow! Yeah, that's yeah that is definitely true.
0: So this could be your version of milking taken to the next logical step.
2: Oh of course, definitely.
0: <laughs> <laughs> is it true that cardamom is really does make blueberry jam better?
2: Oh god, yes. It was um like I I cannot stress all you need is a three to five cardamom pods, you break them open, you extract the black seeds inside. You gotta make sure you get rid of all the like seed gristle. And it's sort of like this sort of waxy white stuff. And then you grind that up. And then whenever making jam, you add it to it. And it adds a very unique character and like flavor to it. Because a lot of people, because a lot of um, Indian cuisine, does incorporate the use of like sweet stuff with like spicy and savory yeah and because of that like you don't realize that a lot of the things that you will find in indian cuisine like cinnamon and cardamom like if you add that to something sweet like a jam it it elevates it to a level where like i don't know if you've ever tap danced because food (laughs) tasted so good but like when you do have that experience it's it's amazing
0: wow is there a you know possibly a jamal hassan cookbook
2: in the future then so there almost could have been one sooner because um my friend's dad um he knows publishers and he wanted me to do a cookbook for ghanaian food oh wow um because it's um because it's it's a style of cuisine which isn't it's Like it's really fascinating and the history behind it is really cool. But um, unfortunately someone kind of beat us to it. And because that person was an actual pro chef, we had to think of a different way to go about it. Um, Wow. So, so I think when I, when things, uh, when uh, this pandemic is over, I do want to try going back to it, but in order to do it properly, I need to visit Ghana again because what I want to do is I want to collect stories about food where it's not a cookbook in itself, but it's like a book about the, about like Ghana and its relationship with food. Oh, wow. And how like, yeah, because it's everything from, because being from the UK, it still is something that I find quite amazing that with the, mango and plantain trees that grow in ghana people do just pick their food like off off the tree like it's just there um and i've always been interested in how that is like how people are going to deal with that in the future because ghana is becoming more of a cosmopolitan city um or at least a more of a cosmopolitan country yeah and it's trying to modernize itself a bit more Okay. How is like, how is like the old relationship with the natural world going to be affected? And, you know, like, how is, how is that? Because one thing which is always interesting when third world countries do become more um, cosmopolitan is that health problems increase because a lot of these places, especially in a tropical equatorial place like Ghana, the people aren't really used to wheat flour and bread but yeah. people but because that is such a staple in like the uk and the us people think oh no let's have bread like let's let's eat the bread and then they end up and like i'm not saying like bread is evil but bread is just one of the classic examples of how their how like the society and its relationship with food changes yeah um and i've always just really wanted to explore that because that is you know we don't talk about like how our relationship with food, like, is part of our relationship with society itself.
0: That sounds fascinating. I would, I would love that. First of all, I love trying all kinds of different cuisines, and I haven't had any, any, Ghana. Uh, I don't even know is it Ghana, Ghanaian? Ghanaian food. Yeah, I've had stif- some different uh, African cuisines, but but nothing from Ghana. I've had some Liberian stuff, which is good. I work with a couple, mm. I work with a couple yeah, ladies so, from Liberia, so in the
2: day. So, job. um, yeah, Ghanaian food is, yeah. um, there are mains, there are like some main staples. So the main staples are rice and cassava and cassava is like, if you, is like a type of just, it's a, just a massive potato. Okay. I can only describe it as it's a mass, massive tough potato, okay. but it's very versatile where um where like you can basically use you can basically make anything with it from breads to literally anything. Wow. And it's and like that is one of the biggest staples. There's also plantain and rice with and like you know plantain it's basically it's if a banana and a sweet potato had a baby. Yep. And then there's rice, like rice dishes are huge and this is a really fun factoid about Ghanaian culture: is that Ghana and Nigeria both um, are most famous dishes. Which, if you ever want to try Ghanaian or Nigerian cuisine, you ask for a dish called Jollof rice, spelled J-O-L-L-O-F. I've heard of it, and even though it originally comes, yeah, it originally comes from where Senegal is, but. Um, But basically, in the 1300s, where Senegal currently is, there was also a place called the Ghana Empire, which was fractured because of invasion, because they had lots of gold that people wanted, and then they moved south to where Ghana is now, Um, and so some of that empire also went into what is present-day Nigeria, and currently, um, one of the most fun things that Happen between Ghanaians and Nigerians is how there is a never-ending debate over who makes the best jollof rice (laughs) and it is the source of never-ending jokes and banter and it's always really fun to just like when it happens like I remember being at a poetry night called the rap party the rhythm and poetry party okay and it was hosted by a man called inua ellums and inua ellums is probably one of the most influential black poets in the uk because you know he's one of, he's very young but also he's like a fellow of the royal society of literature oh, wow. he's very well respected he has like an award-winning play and I meet him and I'm like oh my god oh my god like you are Inua Elams and yeah. you asked me personally to be like on your bill Wow! and then literally right before I am to perform there ends up being like a few jokes about Ghanaian versus Nigerian jollof rice and then <laughs> immediately as I start to perform all the nerves are gone is because I just say at least Ghanaians make decent jollof rice and then everyone just loses their minds I was <laughs> like oh ah! And, and yeah, like it, it really does. And like, yeah, so I think one of the things that make it nutrition for the soul, as Elizabeth has said, is because there is so much that is tied to it. There's so much history and there's so much, there's so much everything tied to food. Yeah. And I've always, I've always believed that like food is a, you can always tell a lot about someone with their relationship with food.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, guys, it's been an hour and a half here. Have I missed anything? Is there anything that, that we, touch, we didn't touch on that you guys wanted to, uh,
1: to talk about? Well, considering, you know, Jamal and I speak three hours at a time regularly, <laughs> you know, this could go on until, you know, the end of time, yes. which may not be far off, by the way, but... Um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's gotta be an ending point at some point. So that that's up to you. Yeah. Well,
0: I've got to edit this at some point. So I really want to thank you guys both for coming on. What, what do you guys have coming up in the future? Elizabeth, I know you've got uh, the reissue of Pearl Harbor. What else is going on? Uh, How can people find that? How can they find you
1: and follow you on social media? Um, Well, everything on social media is alpha cat band um, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Okay. Um, my website is alphacat.band. I have a lot of stuff on there. I keep it pretty up to date. And I do want to stress the fact that, despite the fact that this is being technically a reissue, it's never really been listened to or heard before, and it contains things that have certainly never been heard before. So. It's like it's new, even though it's old.
0: And that's on the website. Uh, And Jamal, is there anything that you'd like to throw out there where people can find you, follow you, and hear the the poetry and hopefully eventually the music?
2: Yeah, so um, my Instagram and YouTube are the main places to find my poetry. Both of them are Kid Anansi, K-I-D-A-N-A-N-S-I and um for project wise um i am working currently on my first ever theater production which i'm basically writing and co-directing and it's called the girl who fell through the world it's about a it's about a 10-year-old girl called ola who is stuck home during the pandemic and she wants to go on a storybook adventure because she's just sick and tired of being stuck at home, but she knows she's too young to be allowed to. And then she finds a magic book in her house that was just never there before. And then upon opening it, it sort of sends her into like a world of stories. So it serves as sort of a coming of age slash fantasy production. And yeah, I'm working with different writers from different countries, because what we want to do is once she falls through the world she basically lands in different places where she hears the traditional stories about growing up from different cultures okay. and at the end she sort of in a sort of like page master esque type of adventure and then she sort of comes back like the prodigal daughter to sort of having matured and learned from these stories wow and that sounds amazing guys
0: thank you both for your time uh, I know I've kept you guys for a, a while apparently not as long as you guys normally speak so this has been a brief conversation for you guys but <laughs> well, okay. I, you I didn't
1: know about Jamal so I uh, that, uh, that was fun for me awesome <laughs> that's the goal how long since you've been to Jersey right now Brooklyn cleansing. Tried so hard, so many times now to forget you. But that river's too wide to cross, to cross in a leaky boat. Okay, so,
2: so, let me tell you a little bit about. Oh, oh, God. Let me tell you a bit about myself. So, I have a fetish for walking into tanning salons and asking the tangerines at the front desk for the usual. I love watching clementine cheeks burn blood orange as they scramble for the manager to ask if she might know what the fuck this negro is on about. I have a kink for breaking the rules of personal space when patronized about how well-spoken I am. I like to get up close and smell the classest perfume Versace but spelled with an F and then I explain to them how my pronunciation, poise and punctuation use came about this way we begin in 1492 with slaves brought to Portugal from Ghana, leave that in a pot to stew for four centuries, add a dash of Brits too lazy to get their own goddamn gold sprinkle on top an education system funded by UNICEF charities and built by Christian missionaries and voila culture with European supremacy so deeply ingrained that people will do anything to feel like an honorary white. Some might move their families to the countries that stole from them, which is kind of like returning to the dilapidated shack of your deadbeat ex only all his other baby mothers are living there too. (laughs) For some reason, for some reason he resents you for your difficulty finding work, despite him being the one who draws dicks on your CV in lime green sharpie daily. All the while telling you to go back home to where you came from, despite him being being the one who sold your floorboards, your doors, and your windows for cocaine. And if you dare to remind him of his sin, he just calls you a plunger for bringing up old shit. Sometimes, sometimes I wonder what's keeping me from, at the very least, sleeping with all the white men in the world, ruining their orgasms, then whispering, Reparations. Reparations. <laughs> cheap stomach acid from slaughterhouses to crumble the marble walls of parliament, or stealing sulfur from secondary schools as I hoard fertilizer and charcoal to make gunpowder. And then my mom asks me if I'm hungry. Unaware of her son's latent taste for anarchy, and I am reminded of the two jobs she worked, of her emaciated ribcage, how badly her stomach hurt just so I could eat another day in that one bedroom flat in Gypsy Hill, burgled so often they ran out of things to steal. And I'm afraid. I'm afraid that my lust to settle the score will only erase everything that she has fought for.
3: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.